0: turn once again in our Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our study there together. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Last time we went down as far as verse 4 in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 together. So this evening we pick up in verse 5 and we're really kind of coming to the spot now in Solomon's record where he's kind of winding down some of his final thoughts he's been giving to us. Again, remember his observations of a lot of the uh, meaningless existence that he sees with life under the sun here on the earth, that is a life that's lived in any way without relationship with God, without an eternal focus, a recognition that uh, all life does cease at some point, and that when we make our departure, if a part of our life was not making preparation, for the awareness that eternity has been put in our hearts and that when we depart, that's just a transition from this experience, but there's a whole lot longer living of experience that goes on forever and ever in an eternal destination, and that if we reject those ideas and we live unconscious of God's reality and we don't include God in our lives, that we can pursue education and knowledge and pleasure and relationships and every form of indulgence and pleasure, everything material, anything we can use to gratify ourselves. Remember Solomon said that that everything he saw with his eyes he obtained and that he did not withhold one pleasure from his heart. In other words, he explored everything possible humanly under the sun to see if he could find purpose or meaning or really just some sense of fulfillment in life here on this earth under the sun and his constant indication to that exploration has been it's just all meaningless and so much of what we see happen on this earth that we don't understand and the unfair things and the confusing things that happen in a broken world system because of course of the fall of humanity and the entrance of sin that that causes us so many times to wrestle with trying to find meaning with things that happen on this earth, trying to find purpose in this life, and, or trying to understand fully why everything happens the way it does on this earth. And we, if we remove God from that, it just totally skews the whole picture, even with God. In the light of the Lord and some of the revelation we have from the Word of God, we still have, do we not, plenty of unanswered questions, Uh, And Solomon has kind of been taking us through this process of the meaningless existence apart from God on this earth. And ultimately, as he comes to chapters in 11 and 12, he kind of starts landing the plane and bringing us to this reality of the one simple thing we should do, uh, which is really to just recognize the need of God in our life and a relationship with him. But look at verse 5 of chapter 10 as he's kind of carrying on with these thoughts these little tidbits of wisdom that he does share with us some of this again is from a very sarcastic kind of jaded cynical mindset but nonetheless the holy spirit still interjects some wise thoughts that we get through this poetic book here in the bible he says verse 5 of chapter 10 there is an evil in other words another thing that he sees happening under the sun on this planet that seems to just be so wrong so out of line, so evil and corrupt under the sun, and that is this. He says, as an error proceeding from the ruler. So now he's going to talk about here in these verses error that was proceeding from those who were in a place of rulership, that is governance, those in a place of leadership, those providing rulership, whether on a civil realm or in any realm really leading other people, an error proceeding from the ruler and he describes what that error is particularly verse 6 and 7 folly that is those who are foolish those who have no wisdom folly is set in great dignity in other words they're they're given great honor and a role of authority some degree of importance or a position where while the rich sit in a lowly place and i've seen servants he says those who should be functioning as just simple servants. I've seen them riding on horses. The idea is having a place of prominence. While princes, those who should be in places of rulership and riding on horses, walking on the ground like servants. So Solomon describes here basically the the miserable evil of rulers over people who make at times poor judgments. Now, I know this is going to be difficult to relate to, but just hang in there. And, and the, the difficult thing it is to process seeing rulers, those who have the power and the authority to make decisions, to appoint other people to positions of authority and power, and particularly as it pertains to rulers and leaders appointing people to handle matters or maybe to fulfill an office or to operate in some role. And he describes the two difficult things at times where this error proceeds from rulers and their appointment of other people to other offices or roles, where at times, sometimes the errors, they exalt and appoint a person to an important position who's just a complete fool. Now, again, know it's difficult to relate to, but try and imagine it, that a a leader would appoint someone who's completely incompetent to fill that role. And maybe there are other ulterior motives or reasons. Well, we have to appoint that particular kind of person because that keeps everybody happy. And so it doesn't matter if they're really smart or equipped or or whether they're a complete fool and all they're going to do is commit folly in the position. We're going to give them the position anyway. And how really foolish that is to do such is a tremendous error because people should be handling things that they're handling because they're competent to handle those things. And that should be the only reason. That they're doing such if someone's going to operate on your body and do a surgical procedure i would hope that you would want to select them on the primary basis that they know what they're doing right that they're a competent surgeon and so he says one error is appointing a person to a position who's just unqualified and then unfortunately they just become self-serving and they abuse the position and then the other side of that is those who should be in places of leadership Those who are competent, who do have the skill level, he says, rather than them being the ones sitting on horses and having a place of great dignity, they get dismissed and brushed aside, and those who really should be in those roles kind of just get completely pushed aside and ignored, and he says both of those, whether it's the rejection of competent people or it's the exaltation and lifting up of incompetent people, both of them are very poor judgments, that a leader can make from time to time if they're appointing leadership. The bottom line is just a leader appointing bad people to places of office. And he says this is a a great difficulty to have to navigate and a great wrong that goes on at times. Verse 8, he then goes on to say, and he who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. Now, It seems here in verse 8 that Solomon's really kind of seems to be describing common ways that we can be prone as people to bring self-harm upon ourselves through certain things that we do from time to time. Uh, There are other occasions in the Bible where it describes this same concept of digging a pit and then falling into the same pit that you dug for someone else. And and it usually pictures in the analogy of kind of trying to set a trap for someone else. So here in verse 8, as he describes digging a pit and then falling into the own pit that you dug for someone else, which is going to cause you harm and problems, or breaking through a wall, and what are walls typically? Typically, walls are boundaries. So here the image seems to be breaking through a boundary, pushing past an appropriate, healthy boundary that you should honor, a boundary that you have no right, or should you in any way break through that boundary? And because one breaks through that boundary, breaks through that wall, they end up being bitten by a serpent that was there inside of the wall, kind of hiding out, and they end up suffering harm. And what he's describing here is how these are common ways that we can be prone at times as people to really bring self-harm upon ourselves through things that we do. And two of the ways that that happens, as he describes here, is sometimes when we are doing things in whatever our motive is to try and harm others, a lot of times when people are trying to harm other individuals, they end up just harming themselves in the process. Have you ever noticed that? You know, People make an endeavor to try and bring harm to someone else or do something wrong to someone else, and all they end up doing in the full circle is they end up just harming their own life in some way. And somehow it just ends up backfiring and they end up suffering because of what they were trying to do to someone else. And another way at times that we as people can have a tendency to bring self-harm upon ourselves is when we do what he describes in verse eight as well, where we make the mistake at times of pushing past boundaries that we have no business pushing past. And sometimes boundaries exist in life. You know, He pictures here a wall and breaking through a wall, whether it's the wall of someone's property or whatever. He he pictures this idea here of breaking through a boundary and then in so doing, ouch, you end up getting bit by a poisonous serpent yourself and you end up suffering harm. And sometimes there are boundaries that exist that it would be more wise for us just to respect the boundary and not push past those boundaries. Because when we go pushing past those boundaries, in people's lives, what tends to happen is that we end up many a times suffering harm ourselves in the process because we overstepped somewhere we should not have. Remember that proverb that we read, he talked about that, you know, he who takes a dog by the ears, you know, would end up be getting bit in the process, you know, not a really wise thing to do. And, and sometimes we just, we, we make the mistake, whether it's in good intention or just ulterior motives where we push into places where we have no business pushing into, and we end up really just suffering ourselves in the long run because of that. Verse 9, he goes on to say, And he who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. Now notice, both times he says, may be hurt by them, and then verse 9 again, may be endangered by doing such. So it seems what he's reminding us here is that part of just doing life, no matter what we're doing, part of just doing life is always going to include some degree of risk. If we attempt to do certain things, if we're endeavoring to be productive or to accomplish things, he describes there in verse nine, quarrying stones, trying to do something productive, trying to work, trying to get some things accomplished, to gather stones. He says, look, if you're out there quarrying stones, nothing wrong with doing that, but he says, you may be in the process hurt by them. You may end up dropping one on your finger. You might end up dropping one on your toe or your head or getting your hand crushed. And part of trying to accomplish the work of quarrying stones is there is some degree of risk involved. There is the opportunity that there could be some degree of danger in the same way he says, verse nine, that the person who splits wood, right? You needed to split wood to keep your fire going, to keep yourself warm, to have light in the house, to be able to cook your food. It was a necessary task. It was work that needed to be done. But he says, look, the reality is he who splits wood may be endangered by it. You may have the ax come back and hit you, or the wood may break off in a certain way, and you may end up you know, getting a cut or a laceration. And, and what Solomon is really just reminding us here is that it is just a life reality that part of doing anything in life involves some degree of risk. And, and if we can't come to terms with that, we're going to be ultra stressed out all the time. Well, I know I need to chop some wood, but if I chop wood, what if I get hurt chopping wood? Well, you might. You may. But you can't just sit there and fear your whole life. Well, I, I, I know I need to quarry stones because we need to get this house built and, and we need, to, uh, but, oh, but if I go quarry stones, what if, what if one hurts my finger? Well, it may. There's a risk involved in anything. You could fill in the blanks there and change the details all types of different ways, but part of doing life involves risk. Part of doing life involves some degree of risk and danger in everything that involves doing in life, that's just a reality. And it's almost as if Solomon says, look, you can't spend your life fretting over all the risks, all the things that the could be and would be and what ifs. He says, there are lots of what ifs. That's part of living on earth. And these are just realities that we need to come to terms with and to to live in faith and just recognize those are realities that can't be changed. He says, verse 10, if the ax is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. Now, you could almost summarize that little statement there. We've kind of come up with this adage today. Many of us know it, don't work harder, work what? Smarter, right? And that's the idea that Solomon's basically conveying there. If the axe is dull, he's speaking of the reality that every ax, as you use the ax, right? The prior verse was about chopping wood. When you use an ax routinely and regularly with routine usage, it, it, it periodically is going to gradually become dull. And as the ax becomes dull with usage, it requires everyone who's using an ax routinely to take time to pause, to sharpen the ax, to restore it back to its nice sharp edge, so that it can be the most effective in using it. So it speaks here of the value and the importance, we might say, of proper maintenance or of routinely investing what is necessary to make sure that things are working in the best way possible. And he says, if not, if you don't pause periodically and do a little maintenance on that ax, if you don't periodically take the time to say it's worth investing, in trying to sharpen the edge of this ax so that things aren't harder and they flow more smoothly and they work better together. He says, if we don't do that, then we're gonna find that things are less effective. It's way more exhausting, right? You gotta swing the ax harder. Back to the prior verse, guess what you also did? Now it's way more risky. Even though you got a dull ax, a sharp ax is actually safer because it's gonna come down and not with a blunt edge with a sharp edge, it's gonna go right through the wood much more effectively and a little bit of what solomon's describing here no doubt he gives this to us as really just a life principle that's why he says but wisdom is what brings success notice the way to success is not by force it's by wisdom it's not by trying harder or pushing harder it's by actually being more efficient and being more wise you know interesting when he describes here that the. Has become dull and we need to sharpen the edge of the axe. If not, we have to work harder and it's less effective. The Bible tells us, remember in Proverbs 27, as we were going through the book of Proverbs together, remember there it said, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And and, and sometimes our lives, kind of like an axe. As we're just doing life, walking with the Lord, and the wear and tear of life and decisions and experiences, sometimes our life, like the axe edge, it just starts to get a little dull. Sometimes our heart gets dull spiritually. Sometimes our minds get dull. And sometimes it is a necessary thing rather than just keep striving and striving and striving to sometimes push the pause button on life and step back and realize. I've got to do a little maintenance on my life here, and maybe there's a need to do a little self-care or relationship care or marital investment or whatever it may be to realize things have gotten a little dull, not because of any wrong reason. It's just that's part of what happens, just like with the act. When you use it all the time, it takes a beating, and so there's wisdom in realizing the way we can stay most successful spiritually, maritally, you know, in every arena of our lives is periodically we got to sharpen ourselves up a little bit. And that comes through spending time with the body of Christ. That comes through getting alone with the Lord and, and spending time with him and, and letting him kind of sharpen our senses spiritually or making investments to do some maintenance and self-care and relationship care so that we're not striving unnecessarily, but we're kind of sharpening things up once again to be more effective, to function the way God intends us to properly. Verse 11, he then says, and a serpent may bite when it is not charmed, and the babbler is no different. So he gives us a picture here. The serpent may bite if it's not charmed. So uh, typically a serpent, right, the snake you've seen the the movies and pictures before, uh, a serpent is usually charmed so that it can be managed and it can be in a sense regulated so it doesn't strike. And he's saying, if you don't manage and regulate that serpent, then it is going to strike and cause pain and problems. Interesting analogy. He says, in the same way, it also works that way with a babbler. That is someone who talks too much. Someone who too excessively tries to dominate a conversation or overrule a discussion or whatever. Some people, you almost just like charming a serpent – You almost have to learn when you identify that, maybe in someone, in a relationship, that you have to learn how to manage, if I could say it this way, how much talk time you give to them. Because if not, you're going to let them be utilized at times, I hate to say it, by the devil, who's, interestingly enough, a serpent... And and you're just going to let them poison the whole discussion and poison the whole conversation. And and sometimes, just like charming a serpent, you got to figure out how to kind of manage the talk time and do what you can to graciously but firmly maybe shut them down or redirect them and and use wisdom in regards to that here. And he says, this is just sometimes what happens. He's going to talk a little bit more extensively about this struggle with the babbler. He says, the words of the wise man's mouth. Now, there's the contrast are gracious so when someone is wise then their speech their way of communicating with people he says will be gracious that is there'll be a measure of grace upon their lips there'll be wisdom they'll be able to speak strategically to guide conversations productively they'll, they'll know how to even with their gracious wise words charm the babbler if you would a little bit and and help the conversation to stay productive And again, their words are not going to be poisonous and toxic. They're going to try and use their words to try and be encouraging and instructive and impart grace to the hearers That the New Testament tells us that we should do with our speech to impart grace to people. So he says, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up, meaning himself. That is, sometimes people speak in ways, and when a fool is communicating in foolish ways, you know, we talk about sometimes people hang their own noose, in the same way, sometimes people in their own words trying to devour other people, they just swallow up their own life. They end up just devouring themselves in the process, and just really making themselves be in a worse position, causing self-harm through their foolish words. Verse 13, he goes on to say, the words of his mouth begin with foolishness, And the end of his talk, Solomon goes on to say, starts with foolishness. And the end of his talk is raving madness, (laughs) which is basically a way of saying out of control craziness, just complete stupidity off the rails. They start out talking foolish and the longer they keep talking, they just become more illogical more unreasonable, and the things they say just go completely off the rails in raving madness. You know, recently I, I saw a, a, a video. I, I, you know, forgive me if I polluted them. I'll confess from the pulpit. I had to show it to my wife and to my children as well. But there was there's a senator from Nebraska, um, Michaela Cavanaugh, who utilized her three minutes of being able to speak among the legislature to basically spend her entire three minutes just chanting three phrases. And, the, and you can go if you want to torture yourself and watch the video. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm already in, in the deep end, so I might as well go for it now. But she says these three phrases repeatedly. Trans people belong here. We need trans people. We love trans people. Now, let me say, the third phrase I can agree with. We do need to love trans people we need to love all people A- and we should love people who are struggling in any way i don't agree with the course the first two phrases one that trans people belong here because to me that contradicts genesis chapter one and two because god created male and female that's all god created so that's all that belong here males biological males who remain males and live as males and biological females who remain females and live as females so i don't agree that they belong here nor do i agree with that we need trans people the thing that's the absolute lunacy and how this verse to me speaks very picturesque of what happened where it says there the words of someone's mouth begin with foolishness And the end of their talk is raving madness is this woman who, again, these are our politicians, spent three full minutes on the legislature floor, basically starting very softly, saying those phrases, and then kept chanting them and got louder and louder and louder and started screaming and pounding the podium and screaming and screaming at the top of her lungs, just constantly chanting, and the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking of because this verse had been in my reference recently, "This is raving madness. This is literally raving're ma- spending your, you're not even giving me an explanation for your point you want to express. You're just sitting there like a child. You're a politician. Somebody voted you in the office. And again, just the sadness of when you realize that some people they're not they're not even reasonable anymore it literally is raving lunacy and and really i don't say this to further indict this woman more than to say that we really need to be praying like first Timothy chapter two says, for kings and rulers and people in authority. remember how the Verses began, we looked at tonight, they have the power, they have to do things. I mean, this is just sadness, just absolute sadness, and it's why also we need moral, godly people to run for office and to function, because hopefully they can give us a little something better than chanting three phrases and screaming like a baby for three minutes long and actually use their brains and say something worthwhile and productive. Just, again, he says, starts with foolishness, the end of the talk is just raving madness, Verse 14, a fool multiplies words, no man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him. So notice another characterizing mark of the fool, he says, is they multiply words. Again, the, again, that's that idea, they just excessively keep just saying things that are just unproductive, unnecessary. Verse 15, the labor of fools wearies them. So notice, they they, they put a lot of effort into things, their labor, they, they're willing to put a lot of energy into things, but their labor wearies them. They're really unproductive in what they're doing, for they do not even know how to go to the city. Now, to go to the city would be a place of a proper destination, is kind of the analogy there, and what he's just describing is part of the problem with a fool is they just don't know where they're going. They have no sense of direction. There's no sense of direction of of really the, the place that they should be headed to, and because they're directionless, that's a characterization of their foolishness. Verse 16, he comes back to this idea of rulers. He says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your princes feast at the proper time for strength, and not for drunkenness. So Solomon describes here the blessing and the curse depending upon what type of a leader or ruler that we have. In verse 16 there, he describes the misery of being under bad leadership. He says there in verse 16, woe to you, O land, when you're a king, when your ruler is a child. And the idea there in the language when your ruler is a child is when your ruler is inexperienced. Or we might say, Immature, unprepared. They're childish in their nature rather than being a mature, responsible person holding the office that they do. And your princes, he says, when they're feasting in the morning. And again, that's someone who, again, because they are incompetent and immature, they neglect their duty to use their office to serve, and instead they use their office for self serving purposes. He says they're feasting in the morning, and the picture there is doing things at an improper time in an improper way. He says in the next verse, when your princes feast at the proper time. In other words, you in the morning is when you shouldn't have been feasting. So he's just describing there this very incompetent, immature person who's in a place of leadership. They don't know how to oversee people properly, so they neglect their duty to serve people and to care for people and to help people. And instead, because they're immature and they have no depth of character, they're childish, they just use their leadership role for a self-serving purpose to feast upon the perks and the privileges, and they don't do things in a proper way or at the proper time. Now, verse 17, he says, but blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and it's a contrast here, and your princes feast at the proper time And they do such, notice, feasting for strength, that is to gain strength for battle or to gain strength for their activities and and the things that they do, and not for drunkenness, that is just to carouse and to to party and to carry on. So he describes the great blessing when we're able to have healthy leadership in our life. And if we're under the the authority of good leadership and those who are well-prepared to handle their roles, and how it's the total opposite. It's a curse when you're under bad leadership but he says it's a blessing when you have someone who's a responsible leader and they're good stewards and they don't only know how to do things that are proper, but they even know how to do things at the proper time and the proper way because they have wisdom and they have character and they understand how to lead well. They do things for right reasons and correct motivations in their decisions as they handle things. Verse 18, he goes on to say, and because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. So basically verse 18, now whether he's talking about the rulers here or not still, we're, we're not uh, completely certain, but one of the obvious principles he's conveying there is he's describing how neglect causes deterioration. I mean, he's just giving a, a word picture there. Because of laziness and idleness, he says the building is decaying and the roof, is leaking. The house is leaking. And he's just reminding us that if we are not productive, if we're not responsible, if we're idle and lazy and we're not adequately taking care and good stewardship of our roles and responsibilities, then decay is going to set in. Negligence will always result in decay. And whether that's in a physical structure, whether that's in something that we're taking care of, Uh, We could even apply that to our spiritual lives, right? What does the New Testament tell us regarding our bodies? That our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. That our physical body is basically like a house where the presence of God dwells. So in some ways, we can apply that to our spiritual lives. That if we become lazy spiritually or we become idle spiritually, then we're going to suffer deterioration in our spiritual life. We're going to find ourselves decaying spiritually and struggling spiritually, and sometimes people make jokes and allude to, you know, leaking spiritually, and they say, Well, why do you keep asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the living water of God all the time? And, well, it's because I leak. And again, I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but we understand the concept. And here he's just reminding us that we can't be, in a sense, astonished, why are things falling apart in my life? And sometimes God says, because you've been negligent. You've let things fall apart. Everything is going to fall apart if it's not maintained, if there's not due diligence and proper stewardship. Again, we can apply that to many different arenas. It's just a reality. Verse 19, and a feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Now, no doubt Solomon here, the man who had more money than anyone, is, is being a little bit sarcastic here, again, because he knows that the end of what he says in verse 19 is not completely accurate, though it may seem that way at times. It seems what Solomon's trying to convey to us in his poetic language here in verse 19 is describing how the foolish idea we have sometimes that as people that, whether it's the rulers again behaving irresponsibly, or whether it's any person for that matter, thinking that we can just live irresponsibly like life is just a big merry feast and party, just a big drunken fest, and hey, we can just be irresponsible and have fun, cast off restraint, life is just a big party, and then after we've done that, we realize that we have problems on our hands, and then we think, oh, money's the solution. I could just throw some money at that, and I'll fix the problem. I mean, quite honestly, this is a part of the problem with our our own government, I hate to say, is we act completely irresponsibly and we think that the solution is we'll just throw a little more money at that. We'll just throw a little more money at that because money solves everything. And the U.S. government's showing us that money doesn't solve everything. (laughs) Responsible thinking, wise behavior, good decisions, stewardship – That's what solves problems and resolves situations. The great human error is to think, and many of humanity buys into this, that money answers everything. And people believe that, but anybody who's lived any amount of time, especially as an adult, you realize very quickly, don't you, that reality, that though that logic sounds good, the reality proves itself that money does not solve everything. It doesn't solve everything. Doesn't solve happiness problems, doesn't solve contentment issues, it doesn't fix this. And we may think, well, we could just throw money at it. Well, that's that's what we'll do. We'll just, we have money, we'll fix the problem. A lot of times it doesn't fix any problems. Many times throwing money at things actually makes bigger problems, from my observations. And here Solomon kind of says somewhat sarcastically many may think that, well, money solves everything, but he knew that wasn't the case. Verse 20, do not curse the king. Even in your thought, and do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom, that is, in the private place where no one else could possibly hear. Interesting, his little analogy. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. So, again, despite our disappointment, he says, Beware, be careful, beware of what things you say, and at times, maybe, you know, harshly critical things and so forth. He says, because, boy, it is amazing how sometimes for an opportunity of self-advancement or for whatever it may be, it is amazing how at times that little birdies can pass along things that you've said and can carry the thing that you said, and then it ends up getting you in trouble later on. Remember that statement many of us heard from quite a long time ago? It's been around for a long time. A little birdie told me. Nothing new under the sun. That came from the Bible. A little birdie told me. And it's amazing how sometimes you think, oh, I can say this. This is a safe person. And then all of a sudden, a little birdie somehow manages to go tell someone something that you said. So, again, just a reminder, he says, be careful because that little birdie may go and tell the matter, and then you have a big problem on your hands. Verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, and give a serving to seven and also to eight for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Now, that's going to be a repeated refrain here in our verses in front of us, this, this idea against Solomon reminding us, as he did earlier, that we don't always know what's going to happen ahead. Nobody can know that. We can guess, we can project, but what we do know is that, unfortunately, misfortune happens on the earth, wrong things happen on the earth, Evil happens on the earth, and he says numerous times in our verses here, for you and I truly don't know what evil will be on the earth. We don't know what's going to unfold. We do know that problems will happen, but we don't know what kind of bad things or misfortune are going to take place. We kind of just experience those things when they happen. But Solomon is going to say to us in these verses here that even though bad things do happen and even though we don't know what the future holds, that should never cause us to kind of go into this wrong mentality where we go into kind of this fretful self-preservation mode and where we basically, well, I don't know what's going to happen, so, so I better go into preservation, self-protection mode and kind of just hunker down and do everything I can to get a tight grip on everything and hold everything and protect everything and keep everything under control and build my fortress around my life. And Solomon says, in all honesty, even though you don't know what the future holds, and we don't even know what evil the future holds, Solomon says the exact opposite is the wise thing is he says, have a loose grip on things. is just realize that anything can be taken from you at any moment. So he says here, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after seven days, and give a serving to seven. In fact, he says, if you're going to serve seven, you might as well just set a plate for an eighth person as well. Now, no doubt what Solomon's describing here is he's advising generosity in giving of ourselves and trusting that we will receive back as a reward and a response to whatever we have an open hand and that we give. Again, think even the language there, cast your bread upon the waters and you'll find it after many days. Now, from a natural thinking perspective, that really doesn't make sense again, you go down to some place where there's water and you throw your little bread out there for the ducks, uh, you usually don't get that back. Usually it gets waterlogged and it either sinks or the duck comes along and consumes it and you don't get it back. So Solomon, no doubt, is conveying the idea here of a faith principle, is that you're willing to believe, you know what, if I have an open hand and I'm willing to give away and I'm willing to share and be someone who's willing to be generous and give of myself or give of my dough, quote unquote, my bread, my money, or to give of my resources or to give of myself and to disperse abroad what I have. Then he's, and, and even though we don't know what bad things are going to happen, he says we can trust that if we make good investments and we're an open handed person that somehow you'll end up receiving it back it will end up coming back to you. What you sow, you'll end up reaping back in some way. You'll find somehow it will come back around to you, and God will be able to take care of you as you do such. So he says, don't be, in a sense, reluctant. Be someone who's sharing. Give a serving to seven, even to eight. And he says, you know, this is just a, a way we should live our lives with a spirit of generosity. It's just recognizing you can't hold everything anyway. You can't take it all with you anyway, and to just be a giving, generous person instead of having a clenched fist to be someone who's casting and having an open hand. Now, some see these same verses here as a reference to Solomon speaking regarding what we might refer to today as, as investing or making business endeavors. Some see what's described there in verse 11, cast your bread upon the waters as the idea of you know, launching your, your grain upon the seas. And Solomon, to some degree, would have an awareness of that because if you remember from the Old Testament, Solomon sent out grain ships all over the world. And he sent them in all different directions. And Sometimes they would be gone for like three years at a time, the Bible tells us. And grain produces bread, right? So Solomon, for at times, you know, would send out these ships full of grain as business endeavors to go out and invest to sell this grain all over the known world on that day and again, remember, there were no radios, there were no cell phones, there were no GPSs. So they would be gone for three years, and Solomon didn't know, did the ship sink? Did pirates take all the grain and kill all of my workers? But he had to wait, believing that if I, in a diversified way, make efforts to sow grain and to spread it out there, it'll come back to me eventually. And so some see what Solomon's describing here from a business or we might say like an investment standpoint is this idea of not being afraid to invest, even though you don't know what the future holds. Oh, everything's going to fall apart anyway, so I better just bury all my stuff in my basement, in fact, under my basement and under concrete and and kind of being afraid to in any way invest. because. And he says, no, no, just it's okay. You don't know what the future holds, but he says that's why you you do what he describes there. Give a a serving to seven and eight. The idea we might refer to that as kind of like diversify. Don't just put all your eggs in one basket. Put it in seven or eight different places. So if that grain ship gets sunk, maybe the other grain ship will make out. And so in some ways, people see this as kind of a instructive idea of not only giving generously, but perhaps the idea of even of investing wisely and diversifying the way that we do such and trusting that it will come back to us and some things will succeed. He's going to describe a little bit more of that in our verses ahead. Verse 3, he goes on to say, And if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind, he says, verse 4, will not sow. And he who regards, pays a lot of attention to the clouds will not reap. So he's describing there in verse three, really just the principles of cause and effect that happen in nature and happen in life. He describes how at times, clouds fill up with, you know, water, and when you see clouds, clouds, clouds produce rain, they produce storms. At times the wind is blowing, and it kicks up, and it ends up knocking over trees. And he says, these are just cause and effect principles that happen. Solomon's basically saying storms do come, trees do fall at times. And when the storms come, you can't control the storm and you can't stop the storm. And when trees fall over and create obstacles, and now you've got a fallen over tree, and maybe it damaged something, or maybe it's now an obstacle in your path, Solomon says, look, those things are going to happen regardless. You can't control those things. They're just natural realities of things that are going to happen. And then the connection he makes to that in verse 4, he says, the person, notice, who observes the wind... Will not sow, and he who regards the clouds won't reap. What he's saying is, some people, seeing the wind or seeing the clouds, go, "Oh man, guess it's not the right time to farm yet. Looks like it's going to rain. And if I farm now and I sow my seeds now, what if the rain comes and it washes all my seeds away? And oh, and then I'll waste. Okay, I guess I'll hold my seeds a little longer. Or a person says, "Oh, it's getting kind of windy. I bet your storm's going to come. And what if a storm comes and then it blows a tree down and then it just..." Cru- okay, I guess maybe we better not do anything. So, let, And the, the picture there is the person who in the paralysis of analysis, always worried about what may happen and because things are happening, basically becomes overly analytical and overthinks everything. And then here's the error. And then they justify inactivity and not doing anything. And so they never do anything because really what they're demanding is I have to have the assurance of the optimal circumstances, the perfect ideal situation, or I'm not going to risk doing anything. And he says, be careful of that. We need to be careful of kind of this struggle of because things happen and we know storms come and we know obstacles transpire, that we start to use that as a rationalization for not doing anything. Not sowing, not reaping, and basically just becoming an inactive, passive person. He says, that's a really bad way to start making excuses for doing nothing. These things are going to happen anyway. You can't stop the storm. Storms are going to happen. Work anyway. Obstacles are going to come. Do things anyway. And Solomon's saying, these are inevitable things, but they should never be excuses for why we will not do things that we really just should be doing. He goes on to say, verse 5, as you do not know what is the way of the wind, and we don't, right? We don't understand it, nor can we grasp or control or channel the wind. We don't know the way of the wind, or do we know how bones grow in the womb of a child, uh, uh, the child who's in the womb? So you also, he says, do not know the works of God who makes everything. So Solomon says, there are going to be things in this life, whether it's how the wind works, how a child starts from a few cells, and then has soft tissue, and that soft tissue then trans into hard bone, and, and that we don't understand fully how all these things work. He says, "Look, in the same way, if we don't grasp that, we're not always going to know the works of God. In other words, we're not always going to know fully what God's doing all the time." You ever notice that? What is God doing? I don't know what God, I don't know what God's doing, and and sometimes that makes us struggle and we wrestle with, I need to know what God's doing. I need to understand what God's doing. And we're we're chasing answers and not that there's anything wrong with that. But the reality is sometimes the Bible just says, look, his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Solomon says here, there are going to be times in the same way we don't understand natural things that we're not going to understand how God's working. We're not going to know what he's doing. We're not gonna understand what he's doing in certain situations, but nonetheless, even though we don't understand something, we never wanna use this rationale, well, unless I can understand it, I'm not doing something. I have to have complete understanding or I'm not taking a risk. I have to have full understanding or I'm not doing anything because he says here, look, here's the better idea. In the morning, just sow your seed and in the evening, don't withhold your hand For you don't know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So beware, Solomon says, of limiting obedience to only things that you understand. That'll get you off track. If you limit your obedience to God to only things that you can fully understand, at times you're not going to obey God if you make the criteria, I'll obey if I can understand everything. I tell you right there, you just made a decision to disobey because that's not always living by faith. Part of faith is not understanding what God is doing, but trusting God, trusting God is good and trusting God. If you want me to do this, I'm just going to do it. And I don't understand how you're going to work, but you'll work somehow. (laughs) And and, and you're going to work it out because you're God. And Solomon cautions us of this. He says the better thing to do is not have to try and understand it all mentally, but just to get up in the morning, sow your seed, keep sowing seeds all day long. Before you go to bed, sow some more seed, he says. Because look, you don't know which will prosper. Maybe this particular crop will prosper, and maybe that particular crop will fail. Or he says maybe both crops will prosper. We don't know that. Again, even farmers, they tend to usually plant more than one crop because they understand this crop may fail, that crop may prosper, maybe both will prosper, but they, in a sense, diversify and they do things, and here's the thing I can tell you that a farmer understands and that God is saying is great wisdom for life is don't wait around for the perfect moment until you act. Be careful of that. Be careful of that mindset where you wait around forever waiting for the perfect ideal circumstances before you finally do something. God says, here's the other other part of that. You're never gonna have perfect ideal circumstances, you're never gonna know everything that's gonna happen, and you're never gonna fully understand what's gonna happen, just do stuff anyway. (laughs) Just do stuff anyway, attempt things, try things. You don't know, this may succeed, that may succeed, this may fail, that may succeed. He says, maybe everything will succeed, maybe everything will fail, but God says you're never gonna know if you don't try things, don't wait for that. Oh, it's got to be the right weather and the right perfect circumstance. God says that will get you off track. Again, we never know. And He says, not knowing what will work and what won't work shouldn't be something that causes us to regress and do nothing and be in the paralysis of analysis and be inactive. It should actually be the thing that causes us to say, I have no clue what's going to work, so I'm just going to try a whole bunch of things. <laughs> And I'm just going to keep trying this and trying that until we, until we see something work, until God prospers something. And many times, has been said before, it's much easier to steer a moving car, is it not? And for those of us who can remember the day before power steering existed, remember a manual car without power steering and trying to turn that thing? And what just, if we can just get it moving a little bit, man, it'll be so much easier, you know, and again, much easier to steer a moving car. Just get moving, try stuff, attempt stuff, do things, let God work out and prosper what he wants and what he chooses, and we'll give you direction in light of that. Verse 7, he says, truly light is sweet, it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun The idea is to work when you have daylight and clarity. It's pleasant to work when you can see what's going on in the daylight. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many and all that is coming is vanity. So Solomon says, look, as you're attempting things and as you're trying things, he says, look, it's a really sweet, pleasant thing when you have clarity and light and you can operate in clarity and light. And he says, enjoy that. It's really awesome. It's really sweet when you, hey, I can see exactly what's going on and I got clarity and and, and I can see exactly what the path forward is. But he says, enjoy that because there are also going to be, as you age and as you live, he says, you're going to realize that there are also going to be many days of what? Darkness. When you feel like you're completely in the dark. And you're thinking, I don't know what the path forward is. I don't know what's going on right now. And this is a really dark season of my life. And what's the key? No matter what it is, you just keep walking, right? That's what Psalm 23 is all about. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff shall comfort me. Again, when we go into even a valley of darkness... The only thing we really don't want to do in a valley of darkness is just stand there and freak out in the darkness. God says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The same good shepherd that let us go into a dark valley, if we just keep walking and stay close to him, he'll lead us back out the other side to the green pastures and the still waters and bring us into the next season of light and clarity that's ahead of us.